when you grow up, everything will be different. I still remember my mother saying that when I was 13 years old, squeezed between friends in the back seat of afternoon carpool. We had just heard Gloria Steinem speak at our school's annual Women's History Speaker Series. It was an experience my mother saw as a rite of passage for me. She had marched against the Vietnam War and for civil rights, and proof of it sat on her desk. A photo of her younger self in a flower print mini dress, flanked by her best friends holding picket signs. Drawn to the energy and potential in the women's rights movement, she had heard Steinem speak in the 1970s. We marched so you wouldn't have to, she said. My parents told me my only two choices were teacher and nurse. She chose teacher. But now, she said, in this last decade of the millennium, opportunities would be unfolding before us. You will be captains of industry. Women will be running companies. The halls of Congress will be full of women. I rolled my eyes and looked out the window. Given the steady march towards progress, my mom's enthusiasm felt pointless and even embarrassing. CEO, rocket scientist, brain surgeon, nothing will hold you back, she continued. Of course, Mom, I know. Eight years later, on the 16th floor of the Time Warner building in Midtown Manhattan, I realized we had both been wrong. It was my first day working at Fortune magazine. I was one of the last people hired before the stock market crash of 2000. A 21-year-old Princeton graduate with a degree in history, I didn't have a single economics or accounting class on my transcript, but I had been an editor at the Daily Princetonian, and I came armed with writing samples from a class I'd taken with John McPhee. I also had done an assortment of internships at the White House and for the State Department's delegation to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. I guess my new bosses figured I could learn how to analyze numbers, read SEC documents, and examine financial results. It was an assumption that was both refreshing, no outmoded stereotypes about girls in math here, and also a little daunting. What's an S1 again? That morning, a supervisor invited me into her office for an informal orientation, mainly to review corporate policies on expense accounts and explain the guidelines for pitching stories. Oh, and your timing is so lucky, she added as we were wrapping up. There was just a big sexual harassment settlement at Time, Inc. So everyone, she waved to the corridor of male editors, will be on their best behavior. I was stunned. That was 2000, long before the hashtag MeToo era and broad recognition that the combination of lopsided workplace power dynamics and anything sexual could be toxic. Even the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which had broken into public view during my White House internship, had been viewed by many people, me included, as more a tawdry sex scandal than abusive workplace behavior. My reporter instincts had me itching to ask questions about the settlement, but they were questions I suddenly didn't feel comfortable asking. What kind of sexual harassment? What does big settlement even mean? Was it a victory that the men in this office would be slightly more nervous about, about doing what exactly? As I walked out of her office past the warren of dark reporter cubbyholes, I saw the true male-female 50-50 split that I'd been accustomed to in high school and college. As I turned the corner to the row of mid-career writers, the men outnumbered the women, but not by much. Then I got to the rows of senior editors' offices. There was one belonging to the legendary female editor-at-large, Carol Loomis, but the vast majority of senior editors were men. I considered the power ratio. Later, when I asked an older female writer about the sexual harassment situation, she gave me no details. Instead, she advised me to follow a men-minus-two rule. 
stay two drinks behind the male editors at post-work happy hours. Never accuse anyone of sexual harassment, she warned, unless you're guaranteed to make enough money from the settlement that you'll never have to work again. To her, it was an obvious statement of fact. That kind of accusation would make one unhirable. She was just being practical. But for me, it was a giant crack in the monolithic wall of confidence that my mother had built for me about my opportunities in an equitable world. That was just the beginning. A few months later, during one interview, a mutual fund manager scoffed when I pressed him on his declining returns. How could such a young woman like me possibly have any informed questions about the subject? On another occasion, when Oracle CEO Larry Ellison and his senior executive team swept into the conference room for a cover story I was helping report, they asked me to get them coffee, assuming that I was a secretary. When I reported a story about 20 CEOs whose net worth had declined by more than $1 billion during the stock market downturn, all of them happened to be men, I received angry phone calls and emails from a number of them, questioning my math and accusing me of not understanding their businesses. The rule, rather than the exception, was for men to either sneer at or leer at young women like me. While doing interviews with CEOs, analysts, and fund managers, I learned to expect a low simmer of condescension. I protected myself by donning an armor of boxy suits and chunky glasses, which I didn't really need. I decided I would be taken more seriously if I never discussed my personal life. I tried to minimize my natural girliness and turned myself into a financial reporting utility, studying S-1 IPO filings, annual reports, and analyst notes. I created a work identity overprepared and calm. When an inappropriate comment made its way to me, I kept a guarded, neutral half-smile on my face. Unlike my male peers, I didn't linger at after-work happy hours. I always stayed men minus two. That workplace identity wasn't really me, but it worked for me. One morning in 2003, my colleague Granger David slumped into the chair next to my desk. Every day, we traded professional strategies and intra-office gossip, and he'd come to report on the tennis game he'd played with two senior editors the night before. If I were to run a gender workplace experiment, David would have made a perfect control set. He and I had graduated from Princeton together and started working at Fortune magazine within a few weeks of each other. Our academic backgrounds were remarkably similar, although he, unlike me, had taken Econ 101. The tennis game, David told me, had led to cocktails and then to a larger discussion about his dream of covering the gold rush, the one in Mongolia. Sending a reporter and photographer abroad, especially somewhere like Mongolia, was an expensive investment for an atypical fortune piece. Perhaps aided by his racket skills or the cocktails, he had convinced them, and it was happening. What I saw was unconscious bias in action. The men who held the most power felt most comfortable hanging out with younger versions of themselves, which offered those young men exposure and opportunities for advancement. The hours David spent with our bosses on the court or over bourbon naturally led to comfort and kinship. That enabled him to informally explore what story angles and ideas might fit into the pages of fortune, or which ones could be made to fit.